Tali, Professor Joe, friends, Rabbi Kenneth Brander, friends, it's an incredible privilege to join you with you this morning. Being a British chief rabbi, you get some unusual requests. And one of the most unusual requests I got some years ago was, please would I write some Divrei Torah for the President of the United States, Bill Clinton. Rabbi Menachem Ganak of the OU had written him a dvar, and he liked it, and he said, could you get me some more? And Rabbi Ganak asked some rabbis around the world whether we would write speeches for President Clinton. You remember President Clinton, yes, guys? William Jefferson, he has a wife somewhere. Now, do you know how good a speaker Bill Clinton was? He was very good indeed. So what do you write for a president that will interest him? What are presidents interested in? Leadership, right? So I wrote a little speech for him, which he liked, and he wrote back a beautiful letter, and I'm going to share it with you, because it is absolutely about you and about Pesach, which is coming very soon. And here it is. I said, it, imagine this. You are the leader of a nation. And the moment comes for you to make a speech, let's say an inaugural. And the whole nation is waiting on your words. Why? Because they are in exile. For 210 years, they've been far from home. They've become slaves. And you are promising them their freedom, which they only half believe, but miracle after miracle happens, plague after plague hits the Egyptians, and now the Israelites are about to go free and you are about to address them in your inaugural address. What would you speak about? Anyone? If you were to make that speech as president of the Jewish people on the eve of the Exodus, what would you speak about? What? Freedom. Good. Any other offers? Miracles, yeah. You can't do miracles if you believe. Hear it on the Chief Rabbi's CD. Never mind, that's a private joke, guys. Um, what else? What? Creation of a nation. You can speak about where they're traveling to, right? Where were they traveling to? Eretz Zavat Chalavu Devash. Guys, you're about to leave slavery and go to a land flowing with milk and honey, or if you were made of sterner, tougher stuff, you might talk to them about the long journey they were about to undertake across the desert, what Nelson Mandela called the long walk to freedom. Could you do a speech like that? If you made a speech like that, it would be the great speech of a great leader. What did Moshe Rabbeinu do? 
What did he talk about? He talked about none of those things. Not one. And that is what made Moshe Rabbeinu not a great leader, but a unique leader. Do you know what he said? If you look at Parsha's bow, we read, read a bit of it on Shabbat for, for our Mafti of Shabbat HaChodesh. If you look at chapter 12 and 13 of Sefer Shemot, you will see three times he spoke about one theme. What was that theme? What is your best quiz program on television here in Jeopardy? Guys, you're in Jeopardy here. Do we have an answer? Listen to this. He kept saying it. It shall come to pass when your children ask you in the future this question, this is how you shall answer them. When your child asks you that, this shall you answer. You shall teach your child in that day. They want to go to freedom. He's talking about education. He's talking about the duty to teach your children in the years to come. Why? Oh, wow. Why? I've forgotten why. You'd somebody better remind me why. Here it is. Here's the sentence I wrote. It was taken up by the British government and put in their handbook of education because to defend a country, you need an army. But to defend a civilization, you need schools. You need education. And so we became the people whose heroes are teachers, whose citadels are schools, and whose passion is study and the life of the mind. And that is what makes Jews Jews. We are the only people in all of history who said the key terms of our survival are schools and education. And so we became the only people to survive 4,000 years, 2,000 of which we spent in exile in the diaspora, one of which bits is called the city of New York. Beautiful though it is, it's still not Yerushalayim, here I go to Guys, what you are doing is part of that story. It is the most incredible story in the world. But we knew that if we were able to pass our values on to our children and lead to theirs across the great stretches and spans of time, the Jewish people would become immortal, and that's what they became. And that is why the first thing I want to say to you is never stop learning. Never stop learning about your heritage, about what it means to be a Jew. When does the mitzvah of learning begin? says the Rambam. From the moment you can speak, you have to start learning. When does the command finish? When you're done graduate school? You're qualified as an attorney? At Yom Hamita, until your last day of life, you have to keep learning. And that's why I'm so glad you're here in Yeshiva University, which is the great institution where you keep learning. 
after you've left school and as you're shaping your life to come. Trevor, that's the first story I wanted to tell you. Just keep learning, never stop. Number two. Tell me something. What was the first question Moses asked God? Guys, what was the first question Moses asked God? What? What? Ah. His second question to God was, who are you? His first question to God was, Mianochi, who am I? Who am I? And I'll tell you something. You're quite right, guys, over there. Which school were you from? Hey, they got it right. Why me? Why me? I'm unworthy of this tremendous responsibility. However, I want to suggest that in a much simpler sense, Moshe Rabbeinu was asking me on Ochi, who is the real me? Tell me, how did Moses grow up? Did he go to Frisch, to Ramaz? Did Moshe Rabbeinu go to a Jewish day school, guys? Where, did he, where was he brought up? He's brought up as a prince of Egypt in the Egyptian palace, adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. He's royal. He said, guys, and what happens to him? He went out to his brothers because somebody told him he was Jewish. And he looked at them and they were slaves. Guys, I want you to make a career choice. Here you are, Moshe Rabbeinu, just about to leave school. What am I going to do in life? On the one hand, look what stretches ahead of him. Life as an Egyptian prince. You know what life as an Egyptian prince means? You have a Lamborghini for every day of the week. You have, what do you do? An apartment in Fifth Avenue. What's, what's the nearest thing to heaven here on earth? What is it? What? Washington Heights, exactly. Okay. <laughs> Everything you could ever want, including Washington Heights, which are the height of heights. Oh, life of luxury, ease, affluence. You're Prince of Egypt. On the other hand... He hears his people crying out. Now, what is that kind of life? Life through a desert. Life in the wilderness where you don't know where the water is coming from, where the food is coming from, and you're about to lead a group of Jews. Is that the easiest thing in the universe? Let me be honest with you, it isn't, okay? So, here you've got a life of ease and luxury and fame and wealth and power, everything you could want, and here you have a life working with the Jewish people. It's tough. It's difficult. Which would you choose? Exactly. You'd be Prince of Egypt, right? Okay. He could have had the most incredible, easy life. And who would have heard of Moshe Rabbeinu? His three closest friends. And when he died, it would be as if he had never been. And yet Moses took the tough option. He said, I must work with the Jewish people. They are my people. Why did he take that choice? Because, as I just said, he saw them suffering. He heard all their problems. 
And when the Jew hears the cry of another Jew, Moses knew, I cannot walk away. This is my people. I cannot walk away. And because of that, he had a difficult life. But because of that, 3,300 years later, we still remember him and study the Torah he gave us every single day. That is my second challenge to you. Stay Jewish. And whenever you have a chance to lead other Jews, take that chance and prepare yourself for it. Because there's no greater thing in the whole universe. And after you've had your 100th Lamborghini, the 101st just isn't that exciting, okay? It's gift wrapping on the box of life itself. And friends, let me ask you the last question here. Mi anochi? Mi anochi? That is a question you are going to ask this year, next year, for the next three or four years of your life. You're going to say, who am I? Who am I? There are thousands of us in this room. There are 12 million Jews in the world. Not a lot of Jews in the world. We're a tiny people. Less than one-fifth of the population of the world, although we're quite influential. In fact, the Israeli novelist Amos Oz mentioned that one, recently he was talking to a Chinese academic. And you know, China and Jews are the two peoples who go back the longest in history. And this Chinaman was saying to Amos Oz, the Israeli novelist, you know, Jews, we Jews, new China, we Chinese, new Jews, we're very special people. We have a long history, we have great traditions, we're very special. And Amos Oz said, you're right, you know, we are special. Jews and Chinese, very special, very powerful. In fact, if you were to add all the Chinese in the world, together with all the Jews in the world, they would amount to one-fifth of the population of the planet. Ah, somebody got it. Okay, friends. Mianochi. How can I make a difference? When every one of us is no more than a wave in the ocean, a grain of sand on the seashore, dust on the surface of infinity, how can I make a difference? And you know what the Gemara says and what the Rambam codifies? Here it is. He says, every one of us should every day think as if the world were equally poised between good deeds and bad deeds and the whole world is judged by which is the majority. And therefore, if there's 50% good in the world and 50% bad, consider that your next act would change the fate of the world. Can we, can you or I, change the fate of the world? Let me tell you a little story. I wrote it in one of my books. There's an African-American called Stephen Carter. Which of you have been to Washington? Have you been to Washington? Tell me, is Washington today, I haven't been recently, a racially segregated city? No, but in 1961, it was. 
There were white areas, there were black areas. It was racially, it wasn't formal, but it was pretty segregated. And in 1961, Stephen Carter, an African-American, 11 years old, moved with his family to be the first African-American family in that particular bit of Washington, which until then had been a completely white area. And he said, I wanted to know, I was 11 years old, how would they welcome us? Would they want us there? Would they be pleased to see us? Would they? The first African-American family in a white neighborhood. No. He said, we sat on the steps of our house facing the street to see whether people would smile at us. They didn't even look at us. They turned their heads away. It was as if we were invisible. And I suddenly knew we should never have come here. I will never be accepted here. And then he writes, just at that moment, a lady walking along the other side of the road, her arms laden with shopping, looked at us and gave us a big smile and a big wave. And she disappeared into her house. She came out five minutes later with a tray laden with drinks and cookies. And she came over to us and said, how good to have you in this neighborhood. He said, that moment changed my life. I suddenly realized I could belong here. That 11-year-old kid is today a professor of law at Yale University. And in his book, Civility, from which this story comes, he says that I, it is not surprising that this lady, whose name was Sarah Kestenbaum, who died tragically young, was an Orthodox Jew. Because Orthodox Jews have a concept they call chesed, which means being kind to people even if it hurts. And I just wonder, I never knew Sarah Kestenbaum. Her nephew ran my office for the first five years that I was chief rabbi, but he didn't know this story. In young Israel, Georgetown, where she was a member, I told the people the story and they said, oh, we didn't know that story, but that's the kind of thing Sarah Kestenbaum used to do. Hebra, do you think she could have foreseen that one summer's day in 1961, that one little act would change a person's life and make them feel the world is a better, more hopeful place than I thought it was because of her kindness to me. Could she have foretold that that would lead to this young man becoming one day one of the greatest writers on ethics and law in America, Stephen Carter, professor of law at Yale? She couldn't have known. But that one act changed the life. And if we hold, as the Mishnah says, that nefesh achat ka'olam malei, that one life is like an entire universe, change your life and you begin to change the universe. What I'm saying is, never say, mi anochi. Who am I to make a difference? Every one of us can make a difference. So I just end with one little sentence which I want you to think about in the coming years. It's a sentence I wrote in a little book of mine called To Heal a Fractured World. 
And it says this. Where what we want to do meets what needs to be done. That is where God wants us to be. So spend time thinking about what you want to do. What you dream of doing. Spend time studying the world and understand what needs to be done. And where what you want to do meets what needs to be done. That is where God wants you to be. Friends, where I want you to be is in Yeshiva University because it's a great place to learn to be a Jewish leader and a responsible member of Am Yisrael. But wherever you decide to go, may Hashem be with you every inch of the way. May He bless every single thing you do. And may your life be a source of pride to the Jewish people and to Hashem. Amen. I know I joined everybody in thanking Rabbi Sachs up to this point. Those of you with questions, please pass them to the edge, and I'm sure I have uh, deans collecting them. Can I have your attention, please? So what we're going to do now for a few minutes is I will show you how erudite I am by actually reading your questions. And then Rabbi Sachs will answer however he likes. All right, question number one. Have you ever had a crisis of doubt? And how do you deal with challenges to your emunah? Oh, sorry. Did I ever have a crisis of doubt? A crisis of faith. Yes. Many, many times. But I'm going to be very honest with whoever asked the question. Never did I have a crisis of faith in Hashem, in God. I had many crises of faith in humanity. You see... In Europe, in the 18th century, 19th, 20th, people believed that you could do without religion. You could just get where you wanted to be by reason alone. And that produced great culture in Europe. Germany, in particular, became the country of Goethe, the poet, Kant, the philosopher, Mozart, Beethoven, some of the greatest writers of music ever, and that is the country that carried out the Shoah, the Holocaust. And when I made a television program for the BBC in Auschwitz, I said, for me, the question was not, where was God at Auschwitz? I know where God was at Auschwitz. God at Auschwitz was in the words, Lord Tirzach, you shall not murder. In the words, Lotamod al don't stand idly by the blood of your neighbor. God was in the words, Vegel Otanu, don't oppress a stranger. God was in the words, 
Your brother's blood cries to me from the ground. The question was not, where was God? The question is, where was man? So I've had a lot of crises of faith in human beings. Because human beings, when they tried to do without God, they imagine they will build heaven and instead they create hell on earth. But what to do if you have a crisis of faith? Trevor, if you have a crisis of faith, search out the wisest people you know of and go and visit them. When I was a student in England, way, way back, when I was just a couple of years older than you are now, I bought a Greyhound bus ticket. I came to America as a kid. I wanted to meet the great rabbis. Among the great rabbis I met was Rabbi Dr. Norman Lamb. Another rabbi I met and had a long conversation with was called the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneers, in the blessed memory. Another rabbi I met was called Rabbi Yosef Dov Soloveitchik, a blessed memory. I met all those people, and because I met them when I was young, I knew I could always be in touch with them if I had a crisis of faith. So any of you who have doubts, travel the world to meet the wisest people you know of, and they will help you. Okay? Next question. Thank you, Rabbi Sachs. Um, There are a few people here who have asked 5,000 questions, so we're going to ask you to do the best of, Rabbi Sachs. Best of. Best of. And, gentlemen, you've had wonderful conversations about your questions now. How about listening to the answers? These are all... Easy ones, Rabbi Sachs. You said we must ask ourselves, who am I? How would you answer that question? I <clears throat> wrote in my diary, I would like to be somebody who showed the world the compassion, the ethical inspiration, and the intellectual challenge of Judaism. I read that diary entry every single day, and it kept me on track. Never live life without a satellite navigation system. Write down in your... What do you, what do you have now? I'm sorry. And I, where do you write these things down? An iPhone? No, 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 on a laptop. On a laptop. I'm sorry. I'm still in the Jurassic Age. I'm still trying to chisel out the t- stone tablets. But one way... And, and not Steve Jobs tablets. But... Uh, Guys, decide what you dream of being, write it down, and read it every single day. And then you will know who are you. As students, how do we balance personal growth with helping others? Personal growth is best achieved through helping others. If you find something difficult to learn, teach it to someone else. And that will be the quickest way you will learn it. You want to learn leadership? Live it. Helping others is the best way to grow as people. There is no other way. You know, Noah saved himself. Avram saved a world, or tried to save a world. And that's why Noah never grew, but Avram kept growing. So never think there is a conflict between personal growth and helping others. If you think that is a conflict, you are making a mistake 
that will ruin your lives. You grow by helping others to grow. I'll ask you a question that's an outgrowth of that because I've been asked this question. Well, therefore, when I finish high school, rather than go to Yeshiva University, why shouldn't I go to a secular college where I can influence others? No, no pressure, no pressure, Rabbi Sachs, but I just, I just risked, you have a thing, I just risked my, uh, my entire presidency on this answer, sir. This is quite, I, I'm going to tell you a story, okay? Sure. That was the time, I don't know, have you heard about Prince Charles, Princess Diana, Camilla, okay. Various, you know, I'm, I sp- I'm probably as well known in Britain or better known by non-Jews than by Jews. I do a lot of work in the media. And one big newspaper like your, let's say, your Washington Post or your New York Times came to do an interview with me, a full-page interview, and interviewed me for two hours. And he asked me all sorts of difficult questions, and I gave him reasonable answers and I thought at the end of two hours that's it, he's just getting up to go we survived and just as he was getting up to go he asked me the following question you'll have to work this one out he asked me, tell me, Chief Rabbi if Prince Charles were Jewish would you marry him and Camilla in your synagogue? Can you work out that question? It was an impossible question, okay? Whichever way you answer that question, you are in trouble. So this was my answer to him. And he printed it verbatim. I said, they wouldn't have chosen me as chief rabbi if I couldn't avoid answering questions like that. It's really wonderful to know that a lowly public servant like me can perhaps provide the chief rabbi with a new life. So when I was confronted with that question at the Model UN, I think last year, I answered, shout out for the Model UN, I, I answered it this way. I don't, and probably your, your experience in flying is a little different than mine, but on my airlines, When you get on an airplane, the uh, flight attendant takes you through the litany of how to, uh, how to prepare yourself. And at some point they say, in the case of an emergency, oxygen masks will come down. If you are traveling with a young child or with someone who is infirm, please make sure that you put on your mask before that of the child. But it doesn't seem logical. If there's an emergency, aren't we first committed to the other around us to help them? And of course, the answer is that if you're not able to breathe freely, 
then you're not going to be able to help anyone. So my answer, Your Lordship, is that first we have to make sure... You're supposed to bow when you say that. I did. I thought I did that. I, I avoided the genuflecting. That first you make sure that you can breathe. You get out of high school, you even learn in Israel. You have a little bit more practicing to do at knowing how you breathe fully, so then you can devote your entire life to sharing with others. That's what okay. Rabbi Sachs told me to say. Chavra, just bear with me one second. What was the world's first university? Anyone know? Yeah, Oxford almost. And then Cambridge. I studied both at Oxford and at Cambridge, first at Cambridge, then at Oxford. In the last two weeks, I have lectured both at Cambridge and at Oxford. Oxford was founded in the 12th century. Cambridge was founded in the 13th century. And the buildings there, many of them go back that far. That is as old a university as you can get, except one, which is the yeshiva. The yeshiva on which Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai predicated the future of the Jewish people. No one has been studying higher studies uninterruptedly than the Jewish people. And that is what bothers me today. Suppose I spend five years full-time studying to be a medical doctor. Suppose I spend six years learning as an undergraduate and a postgraduate philosophy. But I'm a Jew. If I do not give my Jewish studies equal time, what difference am I going to make? The world is not short of philosophers, but it is very short of Jewish philosophers. The world is not short of doctors. The world isn't even short of Jewish doctors. Most doctors, in some medical schools, they think you have to be Jewish in order to be a doctor. You certainly have to be Jewish in order to be a psychoanalyst. Mind you, you probably have to be Jewish to need psychoanalysis. Anyway, but how many doctors have studied Jewish medical ethics so that they're not just Jews doing medicine, but Jews doing medicine in a Jewish way. The way they do at Laniado Hospital in Netanya in Israel, the way we do in Albert Einstein here. Chevra. Never get to a situation where you know everything about something, but next to nothing about your own Jewish heritage. Give them equal time. Otherwise, you can't make a difference the Jewish way. And I hope that's as near an answer as you'll get. As they all are wonderful. One, uh, we'll do two more questions, Rabbi. What is your favorite Gemara or Devar Torah and why? These are all being graded, by the way. What? These are all being graded by the students. You know the story. You know the story, the famous story about Rabbi Yochanan and Reish Lakish. Rabbi Yochanan persuaded Reish Lakish, who used to be a kind of bandit, highwayman, mugger, to become a Rav. It's a long story, you know this story. Anyway, eventually, says the Gemara, they were in a debate in the yeshiva about when certain instruments, knives, daggers, 
the kind of thing you don't want to meet alone in a dark street at night. When is the manufacture finished so that they become kelim hamakablim tumah, that they are susceptible of uncleanliness? And Rabbi Yochanan gave one answer once they've been uh, fired in the forge, and Reish Lakish gave another answer only when they've been tempered in cold water. And Rabbi Yochanan said to Reish Lakish, you see, you're a bandit, you know more about these mugging instruments than I do, and Reish Lakish went into a depression and eventually died. And Rabbi Yochanan had nobody to learn Torah with. And the, his students were 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 They thought, our Rav, he's a lonely man of faith. We need to find him some company. So they sent him, Rabbi Elezia ben Padat, who knew not every, every Mishnah, but every Bryson. And every time Rabbi Yochanan said something, Rabbi Elezia ben Padat said, Tanya de Messiah, there's a Bryson that supports your view. You know, Rabbi Yochanan, you're right. And says the Gemara, at that moment, Rabbi Yochanan burst out in tears and said, Reish Lakish, where are you? Look at this guy, Rabbi Yezabed Padat. All he can do is, every time I say something, he tells me I'm right. You think I need him to tell me I'm right? I know I'm right. But when I was talking with Reish Lakish, he would be, bring me 24 proofs that I was wrong. And I had to bring 22 proofs that actually he was wrong. And so the result was we grew and Torah grew. And all you can do is say, you're right. My favorite Gemara is that Gemara. It tells you, don't surround yourself with people who are mutual admiration society, who agree with you on everything. Relate to people who are different from you. Listen to them. Let them challenge you. And you then challenge them back. And the result will be you will both grow and Torah will grow. Never settle in life for something that's comfortable and easy and unchallenging and unthreatening have your race lockish. Make sure you have people who are willing to tell you you're wrong, and then you will argue with them, and eventually you'll get it right. Always take the challenging option in life, and you will never stop growing. Last question. Can you suggest how young people can maintain a Torah lifestyle living in today's 24-7 technologically connected world? Yeah, click on to our YouTube and sing Ose Shalom with us. Okay. Anyone know that one? <laughs> Guys, 850,000 people listen to it. You really have to do this. How do you live a Torah lifestyle? Very simple. Do you have, what do you call them, satellite navigation system? Yes, the GPS. GPS. Do these guys drive yet? I never oh, know yes. what happens in oh, the yes. You drive safely? Okay, so let me know when you're coming. Four or five years ago, we got in our car. I don't drive. I get, the people know the way I drive, so they don't let me drive. We got our first GPS, yeah? 
as an amazing, amazing thing. It became my teacher in Musa, in Jewish ethics. Because I don't know if you have one of these machines, but whoever designed the GPS in my car never met a Jewish driver. Because you know what happens, you key in where you, your destination, and a very polite lady's voice says, go straight for 300 yards, and then turn right. But it, and if you're a Jewish driver, you say, what does she know? I've been here for 20 years, I know the best way to go is 300 yards, and turn left. And so he goes 300 yards, he turns left, and I'm watching what this GPS does. This GPS has only done the thing you asked it to do, and there you are, disobeying their instructions. And from this, I learned so much Musa, so much ethics. First of all, the GPS doesn't shout out, you crazy Jewish driver, if you knew better than me, why did you ask me in the first place? Secondly, it goes very quiet. And then it says, a little notice, recalculating the route. And then you know what? This amazing machine takes whatever the crazy lost position you're in because you didn't follow instructions and it tells you how to get to your destination from this new place. From which I learned the basic principle of yesh tikva because however lost you are, if you can only remember your destination, there's a route from here to there. Your question was, how can you stay as a Jew in a technological age? Never forget your destination. Your destination is to be a member of Mamlechus, Kohanim, Vagoy Kadosh, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's where you're trying to get to. If you keep learning Torah, which is our GPS, then however lost you will get, you will eventually get to your destination. May Hashem get you there in good speed and good time. Thank you.